This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we're revisiting a trip to Las Vegas with the one and only Dana White, the visionary entrepreneur responsible for a global fighting movement known as the Ultimate Fighting Championship. You know what we bought for two million bucks? What? The three letters UFC and an old wooden octagon. Now a multi-billion dollar phenomenon, White has taken the UFC from a business that was fighting itself to survive to one that collects millions on pay-per-view fights every weekend. And this might be arrogant, but it's truly what we believe, that we're the only guys that can do this. Known in the business realm as outspoken, passionate, and somewhat rough around the edges, White knows the value of speaking his mind in order to make deals happen. People think I swear a lot now. You should have heard me the first three years of this company. Of course, the journey wasn't easy. White recalls some of the lowest points in the early days of growing the brand. I'm the one that wanted to do this, and now I just lost my friends. 30-something million bucks. I sat down with the UFC mogul in 2011 and discussed why he was battling for the sport that made him a household name. What would it mean to the UFC for the MMA to be sanctioned in New York? To be honest with you, New York needs UFC worse than the UFC needs New York right now. We begin our conversation with White's difficult childhood and why he's now thankful for what he faced. I want to take you back to your childhood. I understand your parents got divorced when you were really young. Right. Uh, maybe your parents might not have been around that much as you were growing up. Mm -hmm. How did that affect you? Yeah, I think it, uh, first of all, I, you know, I came from a family with a single mom. My dad was an alcoholic and was never around. And when he did show up, you didn't want him around. You know what I mean? He, he was usually drunk. And one of, one of my best memories, if that's what you want to call it, a best memory, was I was, me and my sister would sit in the hallway and wait for my dad to come pick us up. My mom would say, because my mom worked a lot, she'd say, your dad's going to come pick you up today. So we would sit on this bench and wait for my dad to come, and he'd never show up. So one day, he shows up, drunk out of his mind, and he's taking us to the movies. That was a fun ride on the way from my house to the movies, okay? So we get to the movies, and the movie is, I'll still, I'll never forget this either, Beverly Hills Cop, when that came out. Popular movie, huge. We walk into the theater 10 minutes late, right? And uh, the theater's packed, there's nowhere to sit. He screams out in the middle of the theater, we're gonna have to start moving some people here. Okay, yeah, that's, that's real fun when you're, when you're nine years old. We walk down to the very front row, you know, when you're sitting in the seat and you're looking at the movie theater like this, at the movie screen, and we're, it's already 10 minutes into the movie, and he says to my sister, what do you want? You want popcorn, whatever, and, and he hands me 20 bucks, tells me to go get it. The movie, uh, uh, you know, right. 20 bucks. So I go out and I get the stuff and come back, but that was a typical, you know, outing with my father. And then my mother, you know, she worked a lot, was, wasn't around, so me and my sister were home a lot alone. We had to clean the house and do all the stuff that you, you have to do when you're a kid, but one of the things I think about growing up alone is, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you have to learn on your own. You, you know, I, I was never really into, uh, I never played these sports. You know, you play sports because you, your dad teaches you or you, you, whatever, so, um, but I wouldn't, I, I honestly wouldn't change one thing about the way that I grew up. In no way, shape, or form am I bitter where I sit around and complain about, oh, this, that, or the other thing. If, if I didn't grow up the way that I did, 
I wouldn't be who I am today. I 100% firmly believe that. And you got in trouble uh, some growing up. I think you got kicked out of high school twice, right. once for accidentally nearly hitting a nun with your shoe. No, uh, no, no. That was, I didn't hit the nun with my shoe. What happened? Or, 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 that's actually okay. a stupid story. Okay. Lorenzo thinks that's a great story. I, I'm not crazy <laughs> about that story. What happened was, one day, we went to the school where, where it, was, it was an old building, and all the doors were big metal doors. The air conditioning didn't work right, so when the weather got nice, they would leave the doors open. So one day, I was walking to, uh, walking to the bathroom. I was in another class. I was going to the bathroom, and the door was open, and I'm, you know, I guess I'm a punk kid. I kicked the door shut. So I kicked the door shut, and this door flies shut, and it, it slams, and we still had nuns that were teaching back then, and... Uh, this nun that, that taught that class, I guess, went crazy. So the rest of the day, I mean, the rest of the, that class, she didn't teach. She was just so freaked out about the door being kicked shut. So one of the kids that was in the class knew that I did it. And he said, you got to kick that door shut again every day. She doesn't teach class. She goes crazy and freaks out. So for every day, for a long time, I'm going to the bathroom. I'm booting this door shut every day. And uh, back then we used to use... I, you're too young for this, but we used to wear topsider shoes. Okay. Basically, they were these loose boat shoes. Right. I had topsiders on one day. Come I on, go, I know what topsiders right. are. I didn't know. Come on. So I go to boot the door shut, and my topsider flies about 100 feet in the air, and I got to go. So she, I guess she came back into the classroom with my shoe and goes, I got them now. And she did. What am I going to do? I, the, the school was so strict that we went to, you couldn't just leave school or do anything. I had to go back to class. I'm, I'm going to the bathroom. I've only got one shoe. <laughs> so they got me. Bef I got kicked out of school for that, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, before uh, finding boxing, what were some of the jobs you had? Um, I, well, from the time that I was 17 till I turned 19, I, I, had, I actually had a lot of jobs. I was a bouncer at the Black Rose in Boston. I, uh, I worked at the Boston Harbor Hotel. I worked at the Four Seasons uh, as a bellman. Um, I, uh, I did paving, the guys that go out and pave the road. EJ paving? EJ paving, the hardest job I've ever had in my life. That was the job that showed me what real work was, man. I was like, if this is real work, I don't ever want to do this. Um, what else did I do? I think that's about it. Those were, those were the four jobs I had over the, you know, from the time I graduated high school when I was 17 till I turned 19 and said, I'm not working anymore. How, how do you get on Dana White's bad side? You get, you get on my bad side by not being honest, uh, not being a stand-up guy. You know, I, I can deal with anybody as long as they're stand-up. And listen, and you've seen in the past, we all make mistakes. People are going to make mistakes. And when you make the mistakes, it's, it's how you handle yourself after you make that mistake. Do you come clean? Are you honest? Uh, you know, do, do, you, do you say, listen, I, I, I messed up and I made a mistake. We're all humans, man. We're going to make mistakes. It's how you handle yourself after you make that mistake. You once said, uh, quote, I'd say one of the best things about me is how aggressive I am, and it's also probably the worst. How so? It's true. I think the aggression has got us to where we are today, and the aggression is you know, has got me in some trouble sometimes, too. In what ways? Many ways. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty much... I mean, aside from, like, the comment you make about somebody that's blown yeah, well, up. Yeah, that's I, it. I mean, I mean, aside from I that. Mean, I mean, I'm, I'm so aggressive that it's, it's great in, in, in certain aspects of your life and business, 
And, and, and other times you're, you're a little too aggressive and, and you might, and I say whatever I want to say. I don't filter. I don't, uh, nobody, my PR people don't tell me what to say. I'm their yeah, biggest, oh, I'm their biggest right nightmare. I'm their biggest nightmare. You know, but it's, it's really the way that this company is, has been built and it just is what it is. I'm just one of these people that feels like, come on. I grew up and so did you and so did everybody in this room and so did everybody watching. Watching these people come out with these canned statements, whether it was a guy in sports, a guy in business, they come out with a canned statement that 15 lawyers got together and wrote, and, and you know it. You know it when that guy's reading that paper and when he's saying it. You know what you get with me. If I said it, I mean it, and that's it. We're all adults here, and yes, I swear, and things like that. So do you, and so do they when they're home. Who cares? I, I don't care. What do you think your biggest area of self-improvement <laughs> I got a lot of areas I can improve on um, let me think my biggest area in self-improvement I, I, I don't know I couldn't answer that off the top of my head but I'm sure there's a lot year-round and uh, you, you you've got to want to really work here and really want to be a part of this thing to, to dive in and want to do this how would you describe your work ethic <laughs> my, my work ethic is different I, I'm obviously one of the owners Plus, I love this. I love it. It's, it's what uh, I would be. In, if this wasn't happening right now, I'd be in the fight business anyway. This is what I love to do. I made this decision when I was 19 years old. So it's kind of tough talking about my work ethic because there, for me, there's no days off. There's no holidays. I'm on the phone Christmas Day. What used to drive me crazy when we were building this company, you know, we, we, we do deal a lot with entertainment you know we're, we're we're on television we're in the pay-per-view business um and the list goes on and on dvds you name it we're in every bit of the entertainment business as anybody else in any other business around christmas time hollywood shuts down from december 12th and they don't come back to like a week after uh new year it used to drive me insane it felt like you couldn't get anything done so when these big major holidays come all these other people that take holidays and they're on vacation, we don't. We keep right on cranking, keep working. We're on the phone every day. Christmas Day, I'm doing stuff. What do you do, though, when you've just worked and worked and worked and worked your point, you worked yourself to the point where you can't work anymore and need to just clear your mind? Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, going gambling for an hour in the casino. <laughs> I mean, just, like, really clear your mind. What, what do you do? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you ever really clear your mind because I – the, the reality is I have kids too. So the time that I don't spend working, you know, where I'm not physically working, I'm with my kids hanging out with my kids. I, I do two things. I work and I hang out with my kids. And anybody who has kids knows there's never any really downtime. I am, when I, I devote so much time and energy to this. When I'm with my kids, I'm their slave. I do whatever they want me to do, whatever they tell me to do, wherever they want to go. I am their slave. I do whatever they want to do. So th there's never any real. And, and when I am with the kids, I am on the phone too. You know, the phone rings and there's stuff that needs to be dealt with. So there is no real downtime. Going on vacation, hanging out with them. My, my, my oldest son is a quarterback. He plays football now. I love watching him practice. I love watching him play. 
and, and anything that my kids are into, I like watching what they do. And so you wanted to be a boxer, but I think it was around 20 years old, or a fighter, I think it was around 20 years old, you realized this just wasn't going to be your career path. So you end up uh, teaching boxer-sized classes in Boston to some of the locals up until uh, the crew of notorious famed mobster Whitey Bulger <laughs> pay you a visit. Tell me about how that was kind of a turning point for you. Well, the way that it worked was, what happened was, yes, I got involved with boxing, and there's a, a guy named Peter Welsh in, in Boston that I was partners with, a, a local fighter there. And what we did was we started this um, Get Kids Off the Street program. And basically, it was called the Muni, which was the municipal courthouse in Southie. And Peter and I did a deal with the city where we got the, the, the space uh, underneath the courthouse, which was all this, this whole concrete area. We put a, a ring in there, there were bags and everything else. And what we used to do was we used to bring kids in off the streets and Boston is very segregated, especially back then. You're talking, you know, back in the, in the late 80s. <clears throat> and we used to bring kids in from all the different areas to come in and box. And we wanted these kids to, to sort of get to meet each other and, and, and respect each other through boxing. Well, it's it's great and it's a you know it's it's a great thing to do for the kids but you don't make much money doing it it was you know it was a charity thing that we had done so to pay the bills we used to bring in businessmen housewives whoever it was and train them to box and it was basically we were like personal trainers but you, you did boxing um, and then through that we, we we started going out into the health clubs and teaching in the health clubs and our classes became huge all throughout Boston. And while we were doing this. Some people realized. I, yeah, I was actually here. teaching in, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it's in oh, the Boston Athletic Club. In the Boston Athletic Club, which is in South Boston. And one day I'm actually in there teaching a class and these guys literally walk right into the middle of the class. So we need to talk to you. I'm like, I'm teaching a class. We need to talk to you. I'm thinking, these guys, own the club or something. So I, I leave the class, I go out and start talking to them, and they start asking me if, they, if I know who they are. And I don't. So, and it was, it's not Whitey, but it was Kevin. I'm sure you've heard of Kevin Weeks. It was Kevin Weeks. And that was it, man. They wanted some money. And uh, they walked away that day. I was thinking, man, these are, I don't even want to know these guys. So, and you were somebody who was willing to pick a fight with somebody if need be, but this was kind of a yeah, whole other listen, level. Listen, you'd have to be brain dead to pick a fight with these right. guys. You know, the, back, back in those days when I lived in Southie, I mean, the whole uh, um, Whitey Bulger thing was huge. But it was like I lived in Southie, and, and, you know, there were a lot of people, I'm sure, that dealt with Whitey and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't one of those people. I lived there. I never saw any of that stuff. You heard about stuff. But I, I, I had never seen any of that. This was the first time that any of this had ever been anywhere close to me. What do you do? I ignored him. I didn't do anything. You know, I wasn't going out of my way to try to bump into him again or, or to do anything else. And then one day I was sitting in my apartment and I got a phone call. And they basically told me, we want the money. And I said, I don't have the money. It was $2,500, which was like... 25000 to me in those days, you know what I mean? Right. And they said, well, get it from your girlfriend. She doesn't have it. Well, get it from somebody. I'm like, yeah, well, you got till tomorrow. You got till tomorrow, which was a Sunday. The next day was going to be a Sunday. You got till tomorrow at 1 o'clock to give us the money. 
what did you think was going to happen? No, it's not, nothing good. <laughs> nothing good was going to happen at 1 o'clock. So I literally, that day, I, I bought a plane ticket and came back to Vegas. You went to Vegas. You opened one of, uh, you opened your first gym, which ended up turning into a few gyms. And then you start uh, managing the likes of Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz. And this was way before Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz were who right. we know them to be today. I think Liddell at the time, at least occasionally, would make a, a thousand bucks a fight. You completely turned his career around. But I, I, I want to take you to uh, the UFC back in 93 when it first came on the scene. There was, uh, you know, groin punching, hair pulling, headbutting. All of that was allowed. Senator John McCain, you know, famously uh, called the sport barbaric, uh, like human cockfighting. How fair do you think the criticism was then? I think it was very fair. We, we didn't disagree with uh, with McCain or any of the other people. The problem was with the old UFC was McCain came out and said, you can't put on these unregulated fights with no athletic commission or, you know, making sure that the fighters are taking care of the, the doctors, you're going through the proper medical testing. You know, fighting, boxing or mixed martial arts, these combat sports are the most regulated sport in America. Basically, everything we do is overseen by the government. And he was telling the old owner, you can't do this. And the old owner said, well, I'll just go to places where you can't get me, which is nowhere. I mean, if you, if you think about the last person on earth you want to butt heads with, it's the government. You do not want to butt heads with the right. government. So, and, and, and the reality was, as we got involved in this sport and started to learn more about it, like you said, when I started to work with Tito and Chuck, as we started to learn about the sport, we were blown away by it, by what great athletes these guys were. Most of these guys graduated from college. You know, all these myths about this sport were, were just that. They, they were myths. None of it was true. It was basically old marketing by the old owners just to make it sound crazy. Because, and, and to not smash this guy and make it sound like, how did this guy blow this? In a million years, these guys never thought they were creating a sport. The first UFC was put on by this guy. He was a television guy. And it was supposed to be, let's answer the age-old question of which fighting style is the best. Will a karate guy beat a kung fu guy? Will a wrestler beat a boxer? We'll put on this one-time pay-per-view, and we'll see how it goes. Well, they put on their first pay-per-view, and it was huge. It rivaled the WWE and big boxing events at the time. So, of course, they're going to do another one. So they did another and another and another. People and, only want to see kind of a freak show for yeah, so long, and, and, though. Well, the answer, the, the, the marketing for this thing was, you know, two men out of the cage, one man leaves, and, 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 you know, the most brutal, bloody, violent sport in the world. And the reality is, even back in the crazy days, right, it's been almost 18 years now, there has never been a death or serious injury in the UFC. Mm -hmm. But if you went out on the street and started talking to, you know, Everyday regular people that have never seen the UFC, they'd be like, that's that crazy stuff where people die and, you know, but it's not the truth. That was just the hype. And the answer to that age old question is no one fighting style is the best. You have to have a little piece of everything to be a complete fighter. And what's amazing about the UFC and the first UFC is that since 1993, martial arts has evolved more than it has in the last 10,000 years. And it's continuing to evolve because of the UFC. So while, you know, the gentleman who owned this before we did, 
If, if he had not done that and done it the way that he did it, we wouldn't be here today, and this new martial art wouldn't have been invented. What was the state of the sport when you were, or the state of the UFC when you were interested in purchasing it? It was going out of business. It was basically going out of business. This guy, you know, I don't know if he had the money or didn't, but was not willing to fund it anymore. Mm -hmm. It was... Uh, it was at the end of his rope. It was going out of business. So you and the Fertitta brothers, uh, you know, heirs to the station casino billion-dollar fortune and your former uh, classmates, I guess, were fans of the UFC even before you bought it, would occasionally travel around the country just to sit as spectators at the events and always thought that you guys could do this better. So when you learned that the UFC was indeed up for sale, what did you do? Well, what happened was originally Lorenzo and I were going to get involved in boxing. And I was out with his brother Frank one night at the Hard Rock. And Lorenzo being the CEO now of right. UFC. And we saw um, John Lewis, who used to fight in the UFC. And Frank said, I've always wanted to learn ground fighting because we all used to box. So I said, yeah, me too. So we went over. I knew him. We started talking to him. And we set up a lesson for Monday. We told Lorenzo. Lorenzo came too. And we started taking jujitsu, and we were blown away by it, blown away. We fell in love with it. We started training three, four days a week. Um, we'd all try to learn more than the other ones so we could submit them next time we wrestled. And through that, we started to meet some of the fighters. And then we were blown away by the fighters. These guys were smart. They were incredible athletes. And uh, then we went to our first UFC event. And we sat in the crowd and started to go, man, imagine if they did this and imagine if they did that. This thing could be big. And then I started managing Tito and Chuck. I met those guys, started managing them, and I got into this huge contract battle over Tito's contract with the old owner. And through that, it lasted almost a year. And through that, I found out that the UFC was in trouble. And like I said, Lorenzo and I were going to get involved in boxing. They were down in Miami. I called them and said, I think this thing's in trouble. I think we could buy the UFC. And a month later, we owned the company. How was the deal structured between the three of you? Um, we Originally, the, the deal was uh, I own 10%. They own the rest. I was the president, came in and took this thing over and started to run it. Then, you know, throughout the years here, uh, you know, the, the Abu Dhabi now is a partner. These guys are 10% partners, too. So... It's me, Abu Dhabi, and Frank and Lorenzo. Just out of curiosity, I, I mean, I know Lorenzo had said uh, initially they just kind of bought it as a hobby with no real, you know, plan set out for what they wanted to do with it. Uh, obviously, it's become wildly successful, and you very well may have expected this, but it seems unlikely anybody could have expected it to become this successful this soon. So what happens if they want to, uh, you know, sell their 80 percent, you know, and the dynamic of the relationship then changes? Yeah, it's, uh, well, first of, first of all, they bought it as a hobby, but more to it than that. It was a business. Okay. Absolutely. Because we bought it for two million dollars. They invested another 44 into it. That's one hell of a hobby. You know what I mean? Um, and the way that I look at 44 million is you had like 80 something million before you got taxed and ended up with your 44 million. So it was a, it was a big investment. It, it was more than a hobby. It was definitely a hobby, but it was a business that they 100% believed in. The, the, the crazy thing about this is when you start 
again, when you start looking at the money side of this thing and you say, what if the Fertitas wanted to sell this? Understand it's a business. And in business, everything is always for sale. You know, But right now, and this might be arrogant, but it's truly what we believe, that we're the only guys that can do this. We're the only guys that can take this thing to where uh, it needs to be. We're definitely the guys that love it, are passionate about it, and have the roadmap for where this thing's going to go. So I can't say that they wouldn't do that. Uh, it could happen, and if it did, we'd see what happens. I mean, somebody else would come in and buy it, and uh, you know, maybe me and the Fertitas move on, or uh, I just couldn't see myself... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could see myself doing it without them. Really? We got into this thing together, and uh, we have a, a, an amazing work uh, and friendship dynamic. I think that, think about this. It, it, the, 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 the one thing that's made this thing successful has been the relationship between me and the Fertitas. If, for when things were going bad, and you're $44 million in the hole and you're losing money, there's going to be some finger pointing. You know what I mean? Oh, you, you were the wrong guy. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And never once did they do that and say, we're in the whole $44 million. We think you made a bunch of mistakes because I was the only guy over here in the early days. You know what I mean? Then when everything starts taking off and it becomes incredibly successful and you're, you know, you're doing interviews and you're, you know, that's when everybody starts going, hey, this is mine. Hey, I'm the guy. Hey, I made this happen. You know, and there's never been any of that either. You know, there's never been me going back and going, I want more than my 10%. Any successful band, any successful business, you see it happen all the time. Great bands break up. Businesses fall apart because guys start fighting and arguing. Never happens with us. And one of the big reasons is, and I said it earlier and it's the truth, I could care less about money. I don't care about money. I love this sport. I love this brand and I love what we're doing. And I get up every day. I get up every day and treat this thing like I own 100% of it. What was the lowest point of, of those early years for you? The lowest point was um, when Lorenzo called me and said, I can't keep funding this thing, man. I can't, I can't call my brother again to ask him to fund this thing. I need you to get out there and see what we can get for this thing. I started making calls all that day, and uh, I call, he called me back that night, and I said, I don't know, man, six, maybe eight million? He said, all right, I'll call you tomorrow. He called me the next day and said, let's do it. Let's keep going. So, What was that night like for you? Number one, the thought of failing. Number two, the thought of I'm the one that, that came with this idea. I'm the one that wanted to do this. And now I just lost my friends 30-something million bucks because at that time we were probably in 30 to 30-something million. Is there more pressure when you're at your lowest point as you were 44 million in the hole or when you're on – Top of the world, and uh, it's, I think it's all you. the same. We we put we we actually put a ton of pressure on ourselves. As successful as this thing gets, like when we signed the Fox deal, the first thing everybody started saying to me when we signed the Fox deal is, "You did it. You're mainstream now." We're not mainstream, man. Don't start patting us on the back yet. We've been given the opportunity to go mainstream. Now's the time that we got to dig in and work harder than we ever did. You know, we we got to deliver now. So we've been given the opportunity to go mainstream. And now it's up to us to, to, to take it and make it happen. And you said, uh, quote, I spent the first three years yelling fuck you over the phone and telling people I was going to sue them. Oh, yeah. It was, it was an absolute What war. was going on? The first three years of this company was just an every day. Every day when I came in here, it was war. And that's literally what I did. I'd stand yell on the phone, fuck you, 
fuck you. You know, people think I swear a lot now. You should have heard me the first three years of this company. Um, the bottom line is what had happened was the old owner, you know what we bought for two million bucks? What? The three letters UFC and an old wooden octagon. He had stripped this whole thing down. He had stripped it down to keep it alive. He had sold everything off. The DVD rights, um, <clears throat> all the old library, the, uh, the, uh, the video game rights, the merchandise rights. If there was anything worth a penny connected with those three letters UFC, he sold it. And as you build a company like this, you build a sports franchise, you build a brand, there's certain things that you need to protect. We didn't even own UFC.com. UFC.com used to be user-friendly computers. Now, the guy that owned that company, he's out there somewhere. He and I used to battle for really? years. Oh, for years. I'd call this guy and trying to get UFC.com and the numbers that he would come at me with. Uh, I'm sure he's pissed UFC. now. Oh, he God. sold it. <laughs> Thank God we got it done before you know, everything really took off. But this guy, we battled for you. Just stuff like that. You know, all the rights and the trademarks and all the things that, that you need to build a brand were gone. And I had to go out there and battle to try to get these things back. The other thing was, it, it had become where this guy hadn't defended anything. To have a, a brand worth value, you have to have trademarks and you have to, he hadn't defended any of that stuff, none of it. So I had to go out, not only get all these rights back and try to get this stuff back into the company, but I had to go out and battle with the people who were stomping all over him. Right. You know what I mean? So it, it was, I got into this thing. Me and Frank Lorenzo, all of us, we got into this thing going, this is going to be so much fun. We're going to be in the fight business. You know, we'll be friends with all the fighters. It'll be so cool. And we'll build this thing up. Everybody will make lots of money. You know, meaning we'll take care of all the fighters. Sure. These guys are going to be so happy being with us. And then you get into it and it's, you know, nothing is ever what you think it's going to be. So you met with the Nevada and New Jersey Athletic Commissions to create a set of unified rules that would be essentially accepted everywhere for the UFC and uh, the sport. You, you know, went after mainstream sponsors. You met with the uh, cable operators to get the UFC back on pay-per-view. How about the most challenging part of essentially trying to create a sport? Yeah, it was all challenging. Everything that you just said, it was, it was all challenging. Um, the, the, the hardest part was, you know, now when I pick up the phone and the UFC is calling, people want to answer. Back then, you have no idea. I mean, I had to fly to places and literally had to wait outside people's offices for them to come out and grab them because they wouldn't meet with me. You know, they didn't want anything to do with the UFC. They didn't even want to waste five minutes of their time to talk about the UFC or meet with me. So I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you. I would literally go, for instance, and, I, and he hates when I tell this story, but it is what it is. Um, guy that used to run in-demand pay-per-view. Name is Marshall Zelaznik. And um, they would have these big conferences for, for, for uh, cable, cable conferences. And I would try to set up meetings with this guy. He wouldn't meet with me. So I, uh, I would go to these conferences, and I would look on the schedule and find out when he was getting out of his next thing, and I'd wait outside the door, and I'd start walking beside him. Dana White from the UFC, telling you right now we got this idea, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. You gotta give us a shot. And I just kept following this guy everywhere and terrorizing him. And uh, we finally ended up getting our pay-per-view deal. But long story short, 
Marshall Zelaznik works here now. <laughs> He's upstairs actually right now. Yeah. Hates that story, but it's the truth. Um, and, you know, it, it was just stuff like that. It was, it was one of the guys, when we started building this business, we, we've had a lot of people come out and, and compete with us. And, you know, I'm always, I don't say anything about any of them until they fire the first shot. The way that I look at it is you just picked a fight with us. Now we're going to fight. And, and one, of the, one of the companies uh, that, that came out and started competing with us, Donald Trump was involved with. Donald Trump was one of the partners. Never through the whole thing did I say anything bad about Donald Trump. When we first bought this company, one of the other things that people probably don't think about that didn't want us was venues. Venues didn't want us. And Donald Trump was the first guy that gave us our shot. We did the Trump Taj Mahal. Our first two shows were there. And not only, not only did he give us the shot at the Trump Taj Mahal, he showed up at the events. And then when we left the Trump Taj Mahal and we went out to uh, the Meadowlands, we did a big event out at the Meadowlands. He sh not only did he show up at the event at the Meadowlands, he was one of the first guys there sitting in his seat to watch the prelims. Wow. Yeah. So Donald Trump, again, you know, say what you want about him. The guy saw this thing coming was into it and gave us our first shot and you'll never hear me say anything bad about Trump. In terms of safety, how would you compare the UFC to boxing in the NFL? In terms of safety, how would I compare the UFC to badminton or cheerleading? In the 18 year history, even back in the crazy days when you were talking about groin shots and headbutting and everything else, there's never been a death or serious injury in the UFC. I don't know what other sports can say that. Mm -hmm. You know how many girls get busted up and and hurt badly in cheerleading every year. You know, it's, it's, there, there aren't many sports. And, and I'm not going to go out and, and bash the NFL and all these other sports. I like the NFL. Um, they built an amazing business. But the, 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 if, you, if you line the UFC up against other contact sports, you would be bl My son plays football, okay? Now, my son did not get this from me. I'm not a sports guy. I'm a fight guy, okay? okay? I, I don't care about any other sports. NFL is fun to watch on TV. I bet on some games and I watch stuff. I'm not a sports guy. My son likes football. I would prefer he train in fighting and do that than play football. Really? Oh, hell yes. You know how many f guys I went to school with that played football, blown their knees out, shoulders, had to have all these shoulders, everything else? You know how many guys I know that fight and are 40 now and still in great shape and everything else? I don't know. Unless the thing is for me with with football and, and, and is, yeah, I guess if you're going to make it to the pros, if there's a guarantee that you're going to make it to the pros, then yeah. But the thing about fighting is, I believe that every man should teach his son how to fight. Every man should teach his son how to fight, and even you know, he's not going to become a professional fighter, I, I don't think. But he'll know how to fight for the rest of his life. It's with you forever. Football isn't with you for the rest of your life. So uh, you end up in 2005 doing a reality show with Spike TV, the, the Ultimate Fighter. It's, uh, while I'm sure Spike didn't expect it at the time as they made you guys foot the $10 million right. first season production bill right. ends up becoming hugely successful. And then off the popularity of that season, uh, 2006, you end up setting pay-per-view records, I think nearly $223 million in revenue. Uh, what was the moment for you when you realized you made it? That first season of The Ultimate Fighter was a nightmare. Um, half, first of all, you're right. They didn't believe in it. They let us buy our way onto Spike TV. We do, 10 million bucks. And the first season starts airing and just starts climbing, pulling numbers. 
by C by episode five when the big blowout with Chris Lieben and Koscheck happens, uh, we do 2.1 million viewers. The president of the network gets fired. Everything shuts down, man. Meaning no contact with Spike TV whatsoever. So I'm freaking out. So I'm flying back and forth from New York to Vegas, New York to Vegas, New York to Vegas. Trying to figure out what's going on. People right. are basically just hiding in their cubicles, hoping they're not next. And it literally went right down to the wire. The minute I knew was when Stephen Bonner and Forrest Griffin fought. When that fight ended, we knew we had something special. We knew it was, it was a done deal. And you call that the most significant fight in UFC history, or at least you have before? It uh, is, no doubt about it. And, and that night, not, not only did you feel it there, and everybody felt it everywhere, the guys who were there from Spike TV took us out, and literally took us out in the alley. We were in an alley out by the Cox Pavilion cutting the deal for season two of The Ultimate Fighter. Pre-UFC as it is today, right. what sorts of money-making opportunities were there for these MMA fighters? Yeah, I mean, fighting in these small events, that, that's, that's the thing about, I think it's one of the things that makes this sport so great is all these guys were fighting the Chuck Liddells and the Tito Ortizes and, and, and the list goes on and on, the Randy Couture's and all the guys, the Matt Hughes's, all the guys... That, that, are, that are legends now in this sport and many others were fighting in this sport because they loved it. They were passionate about it. I mean, these guys were making 1000 1500 bucks a fight, stuff like that. So what, are the, what were the opportunities? It was an opportunity to still stay a professional athlete, kind of, you know? The opportunities today are just like playing in the NFL or playing in the NBA or Major League Baseball. And I ask that question because, and I'm going to, I know you've answered this before, I'm going to phrase it a, a different way. Uh, you know, Tito Ortiz, somebody you've obviously uh, managed before, starting a few years back, became very vocal about his desire to make more money after learning he made like a million and a half bucks, or a after learning the UFC made 42 million off a fight he made a million and a half bucks for. And I think you said you feel that's fair because essentially the UFC is the entity that assumes all the risk. But I guess Tito's out of his mind. Those numbers aren't right. Okay. We didn't make forty-two okay. and a half million, and he made a million. Okay. That's not true. I, if, I, if you take if you take revenue, mm -hmm. if you take revenue, and I'm not even sure that that's that the revenue was forty-two million dollars on the fight that he's talking about. You have to understand you're dealing with Tito Ortiz here. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it, let's say there was forty-two million dollars in revenue. Cut that in more than half. Because you're partners with the cable companies, sure. and then we put on all the other all the production ourselves. HBO doesn't come in and do our production. Uh, Fox doesn't come in and do our production. We do all the production ourselves, and the list goes on and on and on of all the costs that are involved in putting on a show. Um, and, and the number I guarantee you was was far from forty two million dollars. Do, do you think there's a point where you know you talk about your competition being the NFL, the Major League Baseballs, the NBA's, NASCARs of the world, where the top salaries of your top stars are in line with those in the other sports? If I told you what the top salaries were with our stars, you'd be blown away. You'd be blown away. Here's the difference in, in, in the way that we, and I'll tell you why. We, we, we negotiate a contract with a guy. It takes weeks, you negotiate the contract, sometimes months, whatever it is, and you end up with a deal, okay? Now, if you're the champion, or a big star, usually your deal is to be cut into the pay-per-view. 
You're, you're, you're a partner with us on the pay-per-view. What we've done is we've come in and revolutionized the fight industry. Boxing is dying for many, many reasons, okay? Many reasons. So we come in, we cut the deal with the guy. The guy ends up getting cut in on a piece of the pay-per-view. Um, there's other times where every time we put on a pay-per-view, we're rolling the dice, man. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. We don't know how many pay-per-views we're going to sell. When we hit a home run, they hit a home run too. We, we, we bonus these guys big checks, plus there's bonuses built into the fights for best fight of the night, knockout of the night, KO of the night. Trust me when I tell you these guys are making a lot of money, and we are on par with all the other sports uh, leagues out there. The most amazing part is we've only been here for 10 years. Every other league out there has been for 50 or more. So in just 10 years, we've to, but the difference is we run this thing like a business. This isn't a fragmented, torn up mess like boxing is. And that's another reason that this thing has become as big as it has, as fast as it has. Really a pleasure. Same here. Thanks for listening to another edition of the In-Depth Podcast. For more from Dana White, head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Thanks again for listening.